Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. You know, coming out of slavery, black people understood many things were important, but two were very important, getting an education and buying land. ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, sound bites, and little seeds of audio we find all over the world. We listen to everything we can get our ears on, then bring you the best of what we hear each week. I needed to find an answer to what I would do. I wanted to do something. I thought about, you know, could I get a gun and go kill a man? Every once in a while, a story comes along and reminds us that episodes of racism in our past, episodes that are painful or shameful to talk about, are not really in our past at all. In fact, oftentimes we make baby steps in our progress toward equality only to keep circling back to questions of discrimination, bigotry, and xenophobia. Today on ReSound, we go to the farms of the American South to hear an astonishing story from U.S. history that still reverberates. But first, an audio postcard that echoes our main story. Separation is one of the building blocks of racism, and there is perhaps no greater symbol of separation than a wall. In this political season of sniping, scraping, and verbal sparring, much has been said about one particular wall. Without saying one more word, you know exactly what I am referring to. We're going to build a wall. We're going to create a border. We need to do everything humanly possible to secure the border. We're going to have a big, fat, beautiful door right in the middle of the wall. That means fences. That means walls. And Mexico's going to pay for the wall. That is how ubiquitous the inflamed rhetoric has become in this primary election. So before we dive into our show today, here's a two-minute meditation on the idea of a wall is told by two groups of immigration protesters. Of course, the beauty and the irony of this story is that you can't tell who is on the pro side and who is on the con. You say, all we need is one of these. But what is it? Sometimes it's important to contain things and items. It keeps out what you don't want and keep out unwanted. Separates people, and it separates families. It divides people. People don't not want to mix with others. To me, it symbolizes death. What shouldn't be there? We take them for granted. We've been making them forever. The Chinese got us off to a great start. Hadrian gave one a shot, but it was pretty third-rate. Isolate yourself. 
privacy is a good thing sometimes. Keeps out the elements. You know, it keeps you safe. I, I think protection. Can't see the other side, you know, you're kind of sitting there wondering what's over there right now. It's just an architectural feature. It hurts when you run into them. Some people wail about them, some wail on them. Well, it'd be a bad thing if it's put in the wrong place. It keeps you from getting to where you want to go. Blockage of ideas. Yeah, that it stops you from being free. It takes away your autonomy. Or it could represent repression of keeping people on the other side. It creates a sense of them and us. At, at this juncture, they're, they're definitely a bad thing, a negative thing, you know. There have been plenty of others, physical, mental, symbolic, metaphorical, they're the common denominator between the rock of Pink Floyd and the rollover of the Maginot Line. You're probably surrounded by them right now. You can go around it or knock it down. <laughs> Something you can't get past. Something needs to be knocked down sometimes. They crumble. <laughs> well, generally they don't work. <laughs> generally they don't work. But it could symbolize, you know, that freedom when it came down. It suggests that we aren't all one people, but we are. You say all we need is one of these. But where would you put it? That piece was produced by Angus Anderson and James Ford Howell for the 2010 Third Coast Short Docs Challenge. Well, uh... My grandfather was a farmer, um, my dad's father was a farmer, my mother's father was a sharecropper, uh, and I was raised up on a farm as a little boy. I mean, farming is all I ever known and all I ever wanted to do. And now we invite you to settle in for our feature story from the podcast Gravy, a project of the Southern Foodways Alliance. It exposes a chapter of American history many of us, particularly urban dwellers, know little about. The stunning loss, theft you could say, of land, millions of acres owned by African-American farmers between the mid-1960s and today. Here is Fighting for the Promised Land, a story of farming and racism, with Tina Antolini. Picture in your mind's eye, a southern plantation, the antebellum mansion with its stately white columns and rocking chairs lined up on a broad veranda. A grove of hundreds of pecan trees tended by African Americans. Other black men till fields on this 1,600-acre sprawl of land. We're in a part of Georgia where towns only occasionally break up mile upon mile of cotton fields. But there is one aspect of this plantation that disrupts the rest of the image that refocuses it entirely. And that is the plantation's owner, who's driving me across the land, a 68-year-old black woman named Shirley Sherrod. You know, there's an area, and it, it, it happens to me often when I pass it, that all of a sudden the slaves, you know, it's like I can feel their presence. And I just wonder what happened there. Shirley Sherrod is herself the descendant of slaves. And she was also once vilified across this country as an anti-white racist. But both those accusations and her involvement with this plantation, they're just the coda in a much bigger story of farming and race. In a moment in which so many institutions in this country, the police, housing, the legal system, are being exposed for long-standing racism, 
agriculture deserves attention too. This is Shirley Sherrod's story. But it's also a story of how racism contributed to the loss of millions of acres of land once held by black farmers. My mother would always say that her father would say he would never borrow any money from Farmers Home Administration because it was just a way of taking black folks' land. There's a printed sheet of paper thumbtacked to the wall in Shirley Sherrod's office that reads, Yesterday is history, tomorrow is a mystery, today is a gift. It's the first thing I notice when I walk in, outside of Shirley herself, who's wearing a blouse printed with royal blue and purple peacock feathers. The slogan sticks with me because Shirley's history is one of lots of twists and turns, so many of which have informed her present. Her story of agriculture and race goes all the way back before she was born, back to 40 acres and a mule. You know, coming out of slavery and uh, my great-grandfather and grandmother were slaves, black people understood many things were important, but two were very important, getting an education and buying land. Land was the promise made to slaves at the close of the Civil War, 40 acres and a mule. It was a promise broken, But the idea that land could serve to root African-American communities, long lacking control over their own destinies, was something people put their faith in, including Shirley's family. I actually found my grandmother's family in the 1870 census. They were sharecropping, and they worked together as a family to try to help each family member buy land. I would imagine, in the end, maybe as much as 5,000 acres. From nothing to 5,000 acres. This amassing of land is one of the great unsung success stories of African Americans in this country. By 1920, almost a million black farmers owned roughly 15 million acres of farmland. This is just decades after the end of slavery. And to get that land, they had to do more than save up money. They had to overcome the prejudice inherent in the Jim Crow South. Shirley's grandfather worked to buy the family farm from a white landowner by paying off the land little by little. And uh, when he took the last payment to him, he was feeling really, really happy, you know, that this was it, that he's about to own this farm outright. But the white landowner said, nope, you still owe more. And Shirley's grandfather was afraid to contradict him. In the end, My grandfather had to leave there knowing he had paid for the land, but accepting that he still owed quite a bit of money on the land because the white owner said he did. He went home and had to tell his family. And my grandmother, who couldn't read and write that well, went to a box that she kept because every time she washed clothes, whatever papers she found in his pocket, she put it in a box. So she pulled the box out. They went through the box and found every receipt. So he could prove that he had indeed paid full for the farm. He had paid for the land. And amazingly, the white landowner accepted that proof. The farm was his. The farm that Shirley grew up on was the center of her family's identity. They grew peanuts, corn, and cotton, raised cows and hogs, There were five daughters in Shirley's family and no sons. So as the eldest child, Shirley went to work with her father in the fields. 
So as a very young girl, as young as five, I could, if dad had set the, the controls on the tractor, I could drive the tractor to the field and uh, I'd be there all day with him and then I could drive it back home. She enjoyed helping her father. But as Shirley got older, she resolved to herself that this was not the life she wanted. There was an omnipresent anxiety to being a black person living in Baker County, Georgia, in the middle of the 20th century. This was the era of a sheriff nicknamed the Gator, whose ruthlessness with African Americans was notorious. Shirley intended to get away from all of that. I had vowed that I didn't ever want to have anything to do with agriculture after high school. Now, I assumed I'd have to come home from college during the summer and would have to work just like I had done. But once college was over, that was it. And I actually decided I didn't want to go to school in the South because back then we always thought of finding your husband at school, and I didn't want to take a chance on finding anyone from the South because I fully intended to live my life in the North. But on a spring morning in 1965, something happened that would change everything for Shirley. I was in school. It was Monday morning. The principal, I'm the oldest, all my four sisters were in school there as well. The principal called me to the office to tell me that it had been shot. The fight had started with a cow that belonged to their neighbor, a white farmer. The cow had ended up in Shirley's family's pasture, Her father met with the white farmer to help him retrieve the animal. But instead of his one cow, he was claiming five or six of our cows as well. And according to the others, my father told him, no, those were his cows. And they had words back and forth about it. And finally, my father said, we'll just settle this in court and started going to his truck to leave and turned around. You know, the man is saying something else and he turned around to respond, and and he was shot by the white farmer. On the way to the hospital, the teacher driving Shirley and her sisters avoided going through the center of town because she didn't want to be seen with the girls. Shirley's father died 10 days later. On the night of my father's death, people were coming, and I just went into one of the bedrooms and I needed to find an answer to what I would do. I wanted to do something. I thought about, you know, could I get a gun and go kill the man? I knew I couldn't do that. And then the thought just came to me. You can give up your dreams of living in the North. You can stay in the South and devote your life to working for change. And um, I'll never forget the moment that 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 thought occurred to me. I feel now that it was God speaking to me. Shirley was 17 years old. That June, she graduated from high school, and the same month, she and others brought the civil rights movement to Baker County, Georgia. Her father had been a major figure in the area, and something about his death emboldened local African Americans to get involved, start protesting. But that doesn't mean the white farmer who'd shot Shirley's father was ever held responsible. The grand jury refused to indict him. So he wasn't even indicted? No, he was not indicted. Never spent a moment in jail. And that summer, as we marched around the courthouse, many times he would be sitting on that rock fence that goes around the courthouse with a gun in his lap. 
It's in the midst of this violence and the burgeoning of the civil rights movement in places like South Georgia that black farmers come back in. Shirley says they provided necessary behind-the-scenes support. Take, for example, Baker County, very rural. So when we march, you gotta go, you go to jail. Who can get you out of jail? It's the landowners. It's the farmers who, you know, and they, I say they are some of the unsung heroes of the civil rights movement because they were the ones who could step up and bond people out of jail. Land ownership is a thread that runs through this activism, not just in landowners providing bail, but in even being able to get involved in the civil rights movement, period, as a rural black person. One of the things that would happen is people who lived on land owned by other people, by white people, participated, whether it was getting their children to integrate the schools or simply trying to register to vote or trying to access their rights in other ways. Many times they would be asked to leave the land owned by white people. So you come to a mass meeting and now you got a whole family that you've got to help find a place to live and work. Noticing that made something click for Shirley. Black farmers owning their own land was the key. And others were starting to focus on this too. In the early days of the civil rights movement in Baker County, Shirley fell in love with a young man named Charles Sherrod. He was the first field secretary for SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Charles and a handful of others came up with an idea. Maybe a solution to what black people were facing in the South could be an intentional agricultural community of their own. They studied models around the world, like the kibbutz, to look at how Israel was resettling people there. So they went to actually study that. What the Sharads and their friends were planning was a kind of utopia. Not just a place where black people could live and farm, but an alternative society. The land was supposed to have three villages. We planned the type of educational system we would have. We planned the type of health system. It was very empowering. We had these charrettes where people who were expected to live there, who wanted to live there, actually participated in the planning process. They found a 6,000-acre property north of them in Lee County, Georgia. They called it New Communities, Inc. White people were sort of caught off guard. When they knew anything, we had an option on this property. And we were, had started the planning process, so they started fighting us immediately. They sometimes would shoot at some of our buildings with us in them. <laughs> they did some of everything to us to try to run us off. The Sherrods stayed put. A handful of families moved into buildings on the land. From the very beginning, though, financing new communities was a challenge. Some of the more ambitious parts of the plan, the school, the health system, took a back seat to getting the farm up and running. We had peanuts, corn, soybeans, sorghum, cows, an array of vegetables. We had eight acres of muscadine grapes. We had a 75 brood sow operation. So it was a major operation. We were farming about 2,000 acres. It was the largest tract of black-owned farmland in the country. In the country? Yes, and New Communities became the first community land trust in the country as well. But as a farmer, you're at the mercy of whatever nature serves up. 
and only a few years in, New Communities was hit with a drought. And then, a second year of drought. Enter the U.S. Department of Agriculture. We actually went to Farmers Home Administration to try to borrow money to farm to get an emergency loan, like all farmers were doing. We didn't have irrigation, which was another reason for wanting to go to USDA. The Farmers Home Administration is an agency of the USDA. Financing had become an essential part of modern farming, and the FHA was chartered to be a lender of last resort to provide credit to farmers who couldn't get it anywhere else. But the Sherrods were black farmers. The farm manager and my husband went to the Dawson office of Farmers Home Administration, and uh, the county supervisor told them, you'll get a loan here over my dead body. So they couldn't get anywhere. They couldn't even get an application. It wasn't just them. What the Sherrods experienced at New Communities was standard operating procedure in many FHA county offices across the South. Absolutely deliberate sabotage. That's historian Pete Daniel. He wrote a book called Dispossession, detailing USDA discrimination against black farmers during the era of civil rights. These county officials, Pete says, had ultimate power over loan-making decisions. They had techniques they used. For example, a lot of black farmers would go into the office and the white secretary would say, we don't have any forms. Or if they got a form, they would just be told, go fill out the form and not given any help because agricultural forms were complex. And a lot of these farmers hadn't had to deal with that before. So they were just sent home with the form. And then they'd bring the form back and occasionally the secretaries would say, you're not gonna get any money anyway. Or they would accept the application, and when the time came, they'd say, we don't have any money for that program. Another technique tapped into how rapidly agriculture was changing in this country. This was a moment when mules and plows were being replaced by tractors. Chemical fertilizers were being touted by the USDA itself as essential to a modern farm. This meant agriculture was a resource-intensive game now, which meant farmers were even more reliant on loans to make a go of things which made black farmers even more vulnerable to USDA discrimination. And it fueled other tactics from county officials. They would lend the black farmer money to get started, that is to buy the seeds and fertilizer and chemicals you need to start the crop year. And then when the time came to have more money to do chemicals to keep the weeds down and the insects off the crop and to have machine repair and that kind of thing, the people at Farmers Home would say, we don't have any more money. Well, there you are with your crop in the ground. Weeds are growing. Uh, the insects are voracious. And your crop's being eaten alive and strangled by weeds. And you, could, you don't have any money to fight it with. So you come to the fall. You haven't made a good crop. You can't pay your loan back. And they foreclose. And you lose the farm. Now, small farmers across the country were being squeezed out as the agricultural system changed. But Pete says there was a huge disparity in how farm consolidation affected black farmers versus white farmers. Between 1950 and 1975, the number of white farmers dropped by 58%. That's a lot. But the drop in the number of black farmers? 88%. We went from almost a million black farmers in the 1920s. And that fell by 1975 to 16,000. And so the difference there is largely found in discrimination against black farmers. 
This was also the era of the Great Migration, African-Americans leaving the rural South for northern cities. The decision to leave was often prompted by discrimination and the general hazards of having black skin in the rural South. But the land lingered in the memories of even those who left. Shirley and Charles Sherrod did everything they could think of to keep their farm new communities. They managed to get USDA officials from Washington, D.C. to come down to Georgia to ensure they were given a loan application. After three years, they got that emergency loan. So it, it was a long fight just to get an emergency loan. And that's too many years with the kind of farming operation that we had. And would not approve irrigation for us, period. And in order to provide the loan, the Farmers Home Administration had required a lien on all their assets. And that's how they got us. Once they had a lien on everything, then they could engineer the foreclosure. So in 1985, we lost everything. I can remember walking at lunchtime down from the office, you know, just walking and thinking, you know, in a very short time, we'll be off this land. Like through the fields looking around you? Yes, yes. It was really, really tough. We held on for about 15 or 16 years. And to lose, um, to lose the land um, was something I thought was almost unbearable. It was more than just property to Shirley. It was a loss of what that land had represented, that hope for self-sufficiency, of farming as a conduit to a better life in the South. Other black farmers have compared the loss of land to the loss of a family member. We had to quickly get our things from up there, and a new owner dug holes and pushed all of our buildings over in them. Yes, we had a farmer's market right by the highway with eight acres of muscadine grapes behind it, but they dug holes and just pushed everything over in them, wherever they were. It was just devastating. It took my husband, you know, we had to keep living, we had children, we had, there was work that still needed to be done, and it took my husband a while to bounce back from that. What helped Shirley bounce back was tapping into that sense of loss and realizing that other black farmers across the South were having the exact same experience. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. That was the first half of Fighting for the Promised Land, produced by Tina Antolini for the podcast Gravy. Coming up after the break, Shirley Sherrod continues to fight for the rights of the African-American farmer in today's South, a fight that takes her all the way to the White House. Stay tuned. Listen up. The 2016 Third Coast Short Docs Challenge is officially underway. Short Talks is the one time each year that we encourage anyone and everyone, seasoned radio makers and newbies alike, to create a great little radio story and send it our way. This year, we're teaming up with Manual Cinema, a film-inspired shadow puppet collective for a challenge inspired by, you guessed it, the moving image. 
To learn the rules and see the four gorgeous mini-movies Manual Cinema created just for us, visit our website, thirdcoastfestival.org. And just so you know, the deadline is May 17th, so get cracking. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome back to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. Each week on ReSound, we listen for the best audio stories from around the world and then carefully design a show around them that will intrigue, inform, and inspire. It was devastating. If this was a national epidemic, who was going to stand up for us? Today, we're listening to Fighting for the Promised Land, the story of black farmers in America's South beginning in the 1960s when they started losing millions of acres of their land at the hands of the USDA, among others. When we left off, Shirley Sherrod had just lost her family farm, but she was not even close to giving up the fight. Here is the second half of Fighting for the Promised Land with Tina Antolini. After the loss of the new community's farm, Shirley Sherrod found herself connecting with others in the rural South. She was one of a whole bunch of people trying to find a way for Black communities to be self-supporting. She started working for an organization called the Federation of Southern Cooperatives, trying to slow the loss of Black-owned farms. And the major area of her focus? USDA discrimination, the kind that she herself had experienced. One of the things we had to do was learn regulation better than the people they had working in these offices. She learned those regulations, which are dense to say the least, backwards and forwards. She would physically go with farmers to their meetings with USDA agency officials. You had county supervisors. I remember one. I won't call names, but I've, I've been there when a farmer would come in and he'd have his application in his hand and he, and he would toss it across the room. You ain't getting no money here. You know, they could make those decisions. They had that kind of power over the lives of, of people who wanted to borrow from the agency. And this didn't get better as time passed. In some ways, it got worse. For a while in the 1980s, there wasn't even a place black farmers could turn to report this discrimination. When Ronald Reagan was elected as president of the United States, they abolished the Office of Civil Rights at USDA. Just got rid of it. Clean, yes. clean got rid of it. That's right. So that when black farmers complain 
about discrimination, there was no place for that complaint to go. So that's why they could try to say, we don't have complaints, when in fact they did. The USDA's Office of Civil Rights wasn't reinstated until the Clinton administration. But surely the Federation of Southern Cooperatives and other farmer advocacy groups were getting somewhere. They would appeal foreclosure decisions by the Farmers Home Administration. You know, where there had been almost a zero success rate with appealing their decisions, all of a sudden we were winning some of those decisions and they didn't like it. You know, we were reviewing some of what they were doing and challenging them and in the end helping farmers. Well, some farmers. No matter how hard we tried, we were not putting a dent in the amount of loss of black on farmland. So something else had to happen. It was so bad that we actually formed a group called the Land Loss Fund and uh, began to raise monies to help the local farmers. That's Gary Grant, who is the president of the Black Farmers and Agriculturalists Association. In 1996, Gary was part of a group of black farmers who went to Washington to protest in front of the White House. They ended up meeting with then-Agriculture Secretary Dan Glickman. After that meeting, Glickman set up a civil rights action team to travel around the country and hold hearings on what was happening to black farmers. And if you sat there and you listened to these grown men tell these stories of how they had been treated like children, some in many cases worse than children, And it didn't matter whether you were in the Delta in Mississippi or in the golden sunshine of California. Black farmers were all standing up telling the very same story of how their loans had been delayed, of how they were never given enough money to operate their farms. It was devastating. If this was a national epidemic, who was going to stand up for us? And uh, so we came together to stand up for ourselves. In 1997, Gary's group was part of the 400 farmers who filed a class action lawsuit against the USDA. The lawsuit was dubbed Pigford versus Glickman for the Agriculture Secretary Dan Glickman and a black farmer from North Carolina named Timothy Pigford. He was growing corn and soybeans on leased land in 1976 when he applied for a USDA loan to buy his own farm. For years running, he was denied over and over again. Hundreds of plaintiffs had stories like Pigford's. And two years later, in 1999, the federal government settled the case. U.S. District Court Judge Paul Friedman drew parallels to the broken promise of 40 acres and a mule in his approval of the settlement. He described the, quote, widespread belief that the U.S. Department of Agriculture is the last plantation which played a key role in what some see as a conspiracy to force minority farmers off their land. This recognition and the settlement might seem like a victory. But to Gary Grant, both Pigford and its later extension in 2010, Pigford II, which turned the case into the largest class action lawsuit in U.S. history, they were a disappointment. The farmers who were involved in the lawsuit, the seven lead plaintiffs all fought the settlement because it was not what the farmers had gone to D.C. for. Even though it was settled for $2.4 billion, not a million, billion with a B, $2.4 billion, uh, the land that had been stolen and taken from black farmers far exceeded $2.4 billion in value. Under the Pigford settlement, 
people who had been actively farming between 1981 and 1996 could file for one of two tracks, depending on how much documentation you had of the discrimination you'd suffered. And those records often weren't things farmers had kept. This is a generation of folk who came out of the Great Depression, who lived through Jim Crow, who had not had access to education. Many of them could not read. Uh, They were functionally illiterate. And you want them to keep what? Did you say, where are my records? Oh, it's on the dashboard of my uh, pickup truck. It's in the glove compartment. So, track A of Pigford allowed black farmers to file to get a $50,000 settlement with just a minimum amount of documentation, which, of course, set off a firestorm of criticism from many sides. We did not come here for $50,000. We came here for our land. We want our land back. And then you see the whole country goes, they're getting $50,000. Do you know what a tractor costs? You have any idea what a breaking plow costs? Do you have any idea what a four-row planter costs? We're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars to even begin to operate. And uh, people are going, they don't deserve any $50,000. What is $50,000 when you took 100 acres of land from me that was worth $2,000 an acre? There was a second track of Pigford, track B, for farmers who both had more documentation and who could find a white farmer who'd gotten USDA assistance where they hadn't. And track B allowed them to receive a bigger award. Letting farmers know about all of this, that they were eligible to file for either track A or track B of Pigford, was a challenge. Many of them lived in remote areas and, for good reasons, weren't just swinging by the USDA county offices to check in on a regular basis. And the original window to file was only six months long. Shirley Sherrod was working to get the word out about filing for Pigford. She crisscrossed the South, helping farmers understand who was eligible. So I had been over in Alabama this particular day, and I was driving home late at night and thinking about the farmers and the case. This was three months into a six-month process. The light bulb went off. Oh my goodness, we were farming in 1981. New communities can file a claim in Pigford. You know, I'm so focused on everybody else's problems that I completely forgot. So uh, I didn't have, you know, these days of cell phones and all. You could call home, but back then, nothing. And so I had about another two and a half hours to drive before I could get home. She floored it all the way home. I remember running into the house and telling my husband, we can file a claim in Pigford. The Sherrods realized they could file for Track B of Pigford, which meant they were eligible to receive far more than $50,000. The filing process required that they not only dig up all their old records from new communities, but they had to find other white farmers nearby who had a similar situation to theirs. My husband spent every day up there in that courthouse in Lee County going through records and finding similarly situated white farmers. And that's when we saw that plantations were getting the loans being denied to us. And these plantations were owned by some pretty rich people, you know, who didn't live in the area full time. So we actually saw our eyes were really open to what truly happened to us. 
The process of actually determining who was awarded a claim took years. It was 10 years almost to the date from filing the claim. We filed a claim in 1999. Uh, Our hearing was held in 2002. The Sherrod's claim was reviewed by an adjudicator. And then, on the night of July 8, 2009, the Sherrod's lawyer, Rose Sanders, called. She called our house, and she said, Surely have you heard? And I said, no. She said, we won. You know, I wanted to be excited, and I didn't want to be so excited and have a big letdown. So I said, really? I said, really? And she said, yes. She said, you want to guess how much? And I said, Rose, is it at least a million dollars? She said, it's 12. 12 million dollars. So unbelievable. So unbelievable. My husband and I cried that night, but we hadn't seen it in writing because we didn't have anything. So we called her the next morning and said, Rose, can you just fax it to us? You know, we, we wanted to see it. And when you read that document, oh my goodness, it will. Because he went back and he, he documented everything to show that we were definitely, we definitely faced discrimination. The validation of that is what sticks with Shirley, in part because it's so rare that institutional racism is recognized and remunerated in this country. In fact, that's part of what made the Pigford settlement so contentious, then and since. As Gary Grant implied earlier, it was cast by its detractors as modern-day reparations. That settlement money could have been a satisfying conclusion to Shirley's story of race, agriculture, and the USDA. But it wasn't. Because just weeks after they got the word about the award for new communities, she got a call from the Obama administration. They wanted to appoint her Georgia's state director for rural development at the USDA. This wasn't the first time she'd been discussed as a potential candidate. She now had decades of experience working with farmers. But it was still a huge deal. Here she was, being invited to join and lead part of the very agency who discriminated against her. She would be the first black state director of rural development. It's like, oh my goodness. You know? So on that call, I guess the guy thought I was a little hesitant. And he said, you're still going to do it, aren't you? And I said, yes. You know, my mind had already gone from, oh my goodness, we just got the award. I really need to be here. But then who knows when they'll ever select another person of color, another black person, to go into the state office. I had to do that. But this accomplishment would lead her to the most high-profile wrestling with race and farming she'd had yet. Less than a year into her tenure at the USDA, a video surfaced from a speech she'd given at the NAACP in Georgia. Conservative blogger Andrew Breitbart started circulating an edited section of Shirley's speech in which she told a story about a white farmer named Roger Spooner coming to her for help saving his farm. What he didn't know while he was taking all that time trying to show me he was superior to me was I was trying to decide just how much help I was going to give him. <laughs> I was struggling with the fact that so many black people have lost their farmland, and here I was faced with having to help a white person save their land. 
So I didn't give him the full force of what I could do. Shirley did say all these things. But it was part of a larger story about her revelation that poor white farmers needed help, too. So I thought all white farmers got everything they needed. I didn't realize that some of them faced discrimination, in a sense. Some of the things that were done to black farmers were done to some poor white farmers. In helping the Spooners, I realized that. So that's why I would tell the story of my work with the Spooners. Uh, and how I came to realize that it was more about being poor. More about poverty than about race. That was the point she was making, that she'd had to overcome her own assumptions about race. But Breitbart's video didn't include the part where Shirley talked about realizing she'd been wrong. The excerpted video went viral. Shirley first got wind of it in a meeting in Atlanta. And when we finished the presentation, I looked at my Blackberry and saw that someone was, had emailed me saying I should be ashamed of myself, refusing to help a white farmer, and I was a government official. Like, oh no. So I sat there in that meeting and typed out a response. You know, those little, my fingers still have trouble. I see people can text so quick. But I typed out this message saying, no, that's not my message, and told that individual what my message was. And I told him that I helped that white farmer and we became good friends. So that individual emailed back and asked me how could he get a copy of the tape. I emailed him and told him how he could get a copy of the tape. So then I sent all of that to USDA. But a few days later, the USDA hadn't done anything about it until it started circulating on the cable news TV shows. Commentators pounced on it. You know, you can't be a black racist any more than you can be a white racist. The federal government cannot have skin color deciding any assistance. Perhaps everybody needs a refresher course on what racism looks like. I mean, that is... Exhibit A. Then came the call from Shirley's superior, Cheryl Cook, at the USDA, that they were putting her on administrative leave. And uh, I'm pleading with her, trying to get her to understand that this was something that happened 24 years ago that I did help that farmer. We became great friends. He had his land because of me and all, but she wasn't listening to any of that. I said, so what do I do? She said, go home and have a good rest. She'd been at a work meeting across Georgia and had hours to drive to get back home. All along the way, she got more calls. I was going through Atlanta. It was around 5 o'clock, 5 o'clock traffic. When I got another call from her, and uh, where are you now? And I said, I'm going through Atlanta. And this is when she told me the White House wanted me to resign. They had not even watched the whole tape, didn't ask me anything, never tried to get my side of the story, even though I was trying to tell it, you know, each time that I talked to them. 30 minutes later, she got another call. They wanted that resignation now. She said they wanted me to pull to the side of the road and use my BlackBerry to submit my letter of resignation. So I finally told her I would, and I did pull to the side of the road, and I sat there and wrote the letter of resignation. Before I hung up with her, though, I told her, you haven't heard the last from me. After all the decades of discrimination at the USDA, it appears that Shirley Sherrod may have been the first person fired from the department for racial prejudice. The irony of that is not lost on Shirley, but, she says, 
all the many rounds of this fight had made her strong. You know, I always say they picked the wrong one. You know, because I'm a fighter. I've been in the civil rights movement since 1965. Can you imagine what it's like to lose your father, especially in the way that we lost our father? Can you imagine having to bounce back from that, you know, and move on? And not just move on for yourself, but move on for others as well. So when I made that commitment on the night of March the 25th, 1965, I made a commitment to a life of work. And that hasn't always been easy, you know. I've been in a house where white men came in and set it on fire with me in it. But you can't give up. And as is the way with 24-hour news cycles, as quickly as the case was built against Shirley, it was torn down. Media outlets got a hold of the tape of her whole speech. It became apparent that her comments had been taken out of context. Ultimately, USDA Secretary Tom Vilsack apologized to Shirley on national TV. I want to make sure everyone understands this was my decision. And it was a decision uh, that I regret having made in haste. Shirley had a phone call with President Obama. They tried to offer her a new job at the USDA. But Shirley said no. She had a new plan. Which is what brings us back to that plantation. I say they took 6,000 acres from us. But God gave us a plantation. With the Pigford settlement money they received for new communities, the Sherrods have turned back to land ownership. They bought what was known as the Cypress Pond Plantation on the outskirts of Albany, Georgia. One of the early owners was Hartwell Hill Tarver. He was the largest slave owner and the wealthiest man in the state of Georgia back in the 1800s, and he held the largest number of slaves at this plantation. Oh, the land started back there, I'm sorry. <laughs> so that's the land to the right there. It's 1,638 acres, yeah. There's an antebellum house, like something out of Hollywood's idea of the Old South, down to the rocking chairs on the porch, the live oaks, and the pecan grove, which Shirley drives me through. And the year before last, the crop was so, the trees were so loaded with, with uh, pecans that we had to put a tape up there to keep people from coming down this, this road because all of the branches were laying over <laughs> on the uh, road full of pecans. They've renamed the plantation Resora for resilience and restoration. It's still getting up and running. Right now they just have the pecans and some fields of zucchini. So this is the farming area when you look at those plans. This is all the farming area. Eventually, they intend Resora to be a training ground for new farmers who can't get land themselves. So what, what will we see when we look out there? And You're going to see vegetables growing and other experimental crops and so forth. We expect to be able to train lots of young people in the field of agriculture to, you know, let them know that it's not just picking cotton anymore and that, that, that hopefully it is possible to make a profit from the hard work that you do on the farm. In many ways, regaining this land makes Shirley's story exceptional. It's where her story diverges from the experience of so many black farmers who lost their land. The consensus from many people I've spoken with 
is that the Pigford versus Glickman class action lawsuit did not dramatically change the status of most black farmers. The USDA, though, thinks things are looking brighter. Secretary Vilsack and this administration are keenly aware of the tragic history of USDA. Joe Leonard is Assistant Secretary for Civil Rights at the USDA. However, for the last almost seven years, we have done everything possible to be able to create a new page, a new chapter in the book uh, for the modern USDA. Joe Leonard says the number of black farmers is on the rise again, up 12 percent in recent years. But that's still just 1.4 percent of the country's farmers, one-tenth of what it was a century ago. And Gary Grant is skeptical of the USDA's sunnier outlook. Do you know that if you gross $1,000 on food production, you are considered a farmer? As far as we can determine, Gary is right. In fact, the USDA doesn't stipulate any level of income to be considered a farmer. Exactly. So we are now talking about urban gardeners, urban black gardeners. That's who's being counted, that we are on the rise again. We are not on the rise. We're still being foreclosed on. And you're now talking about folk who are doing gardening as farmers and not people who are actually trying to make a living off of the farm, like the family farmer, you know. The Office of Civil Rights ought to be stepping up to the bat and saying, whoa, wait a minute, how do we really define a farmer? After so many decades of work, Shirley Sherrod doesn't present a beatific portrait of the way things are or are going to be for black farmers. There's a weariness that frequently makes its way into her voice. The civil rights movement never ended, she tells me at one point. Some of us have been fighting in it for decades. While we're together, she gets a call from an acquaintance reporting a new incident of discrimination. Her husband and partner for almost 50 years, Charles, has been unwell. She's trying to open a local food hub in an old Winn-Dixie store. The world keeps demanding that Shirley step up, and she keeps volunteering to do so. But before we leave the plantation, she stands on the veranda of the antebellum mansion in her royal blue and purple blouse, and a small smile creeps onto her face. And just think of it now. This was once owned by a slave owner, and now it's in the hands of descendants of slaves. I mean, just think of the, how you can teach and work with African-Americans, especially young kids who don't seem to have any hope, don't seem to have a vision. Just think of what you can do from this. Who would have thought? You know, when those slaves were here working, I'm sure they could never envision the day when some of their people would be in charge of this. So everything's possible. That was Fighting for the Promised Land, a story of farming and racism, produced by Tina Antolini for the podcast Gravy from the Southern Foodways Alliance. Forty acres of land. Not particularly good land either. A barn that isn't big or even new. And no tractor. Just a team of mules, an understanding of the earth and things that grow. And long hours of hard work for everyone. 
doesn't seem like much. But these are the sort of things that make a farmer. Before we go, we have a little outtake we think you'll enjoy. Sometimes the best things happen after an interview is over, and the smart reporter will keep her microphone on and at the ready to take advantage of that journalistic sweet spot when her subjects are the most relaxed. Sometimes they say something wonderful. Sometimes the unexpected happens. And sometimes you just come upon what Tina Antolini calls a golden moment. It happened as we were driving off Shirley Sherrod's plantation. She pulled the car over when she saw an older gentleman on a tractor. Emery Harris works on the farm. Hey there. Hey. I just wanted you to meet Tina. How you doing? Hi, sir. Nice to meet meet you. you. Shirley has known Emery for decades, since they both worked in the early days of the civil rights movement here. When he's out on his tractor, Emery tells me, he's always singing. I'll be doing some... You know, when I was young, I fought for freedom in Albany, Georgia. I traveled around all over the country, yeah, preaching about nonviolent is the way. Nonviolent is the only way we can win. So I'm hoping that you believe in what I say. If you do everything and do it through faith, I know God will, God will, yeah, make a way. You've been listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxai. The program is produced by Dennis Funk and curated by Johanna Zorn and Sarah Geis of the Third Coast Festival. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear more than 1,500 outstanding documentaries from around the world and subscribe to our podcast. Support for ReSound comes from Emma, a web-based email marketing and communication service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Riva and David Logan Foundation and the National Endowment for the Arts. The Third Coast Festival is supported in part by a grant from the Illinois Arts Council Agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival, now an independent arts organization, was originally founded at WBEZ Chicago. If you want to contact us, we would love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. You can also connect with us through Facebook and Twitter. Resound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else. 
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.